If you're a fan of wartime prisoner of war escape stories, we've got a good one for you on today's program. It's a World War I mass escape that helped set the template for some of the spectacular escapes and escape attempts in World War II. It's the subject of a book by St. Louis native Neil Bascom titled The Escape Artists, a Band of Daredevil Pilots and the Greatest Prison Break of the Great War. Neil Bascom joins me in studio. Great to see you. Thanks for having me back. Love the book. I love books like this. Thank you. I, I always marvel at the research. I mean, you were so explicit and descriptive of things that happened a century ago. Uh, where do you find all this stuff? Well, I mean, I, I always sort of endeavor to try to put the reader in into the character's eyes yeah. and, and, and sort of hearts and know what they're thinking and feeling and seeing. Uh, in this book, probably harder than most of my others was, of course, all these gentlemen had long passed. Um, very few of them had hadn't written memoirs at all, so I went to the families and uh, discovered these treasure troves of information. Uh, many unpublished uh, memoirs, many letters that they wrote while in prison, uh, diaries that they kept. I mean, just a remarkable um, uh, find on on the part of the book, and and really gave me a window into into these men's souls, which was wonderful. A very special and unique uh, group of young men who. Uh, who were the early pilots in the history of aviation, uh, kind of draw a picture of what these guys were like. Well, for the most part, they were wealthy. Uh, they were Oxford, Cambridge educated. Uh, they were kind of the first ones to ride motorcycles very fast. Uh, they were daredevils, as the subtitle says. Um, they were individuals who sort of were on the cutting edge of things. And they were rascals of the highest sort, um, which made them a lot of fun to write about, a lot of, a lot of fun to describe. And they were the first ones to uh, join the RFC, the Royal Flying Corps, which was at the time a fledgling force. Uh, many of them brought their own planes. Uh, and when <laughs> I say planes, I mean, you know, some wood, some cloth, and some piano wires strung together. Egg beaters that flew. <laughs> exactly. That sort of thing. Well, you have one great line in there about uh, during the application process where uh, they were asked, do you ride? Do you ride? Another great one was, uh, who do you prefer, uh, Shelley or Tennyson? As if uh, your choice of poet uh, <laughs> would determine whether or not you were a good pilot or not. Of course, the do you ride referred to their equestrian, exactly. <laughs> equestrian life. <laughs> the thing that uh, the book gets off to a great start, a very visual start, I find, with uh, the, the, the early flying machines, as we've just described, uh, and the young men who were flying them, and the dogfights. I mean, this must have been really... A very hairy time for everybody involved up in the air. Well, it was very harrowing. Um, they didn't know, you know, whether their engines would give out at any second. Uh, which they often which did. Which they often did. Uh, whether the, the wings would sort of shear off from the sheer G-forces. Um, and they knew that it was a very dangerous business. They knew when they woke up in the morning and they were given their squadron assignments that a, a number of their fellow pilots uh, – uh, were not there at the breakfast table because they had died the day before. The average lifespan of an RFC pilot at this time in the air over the front was 17 hours. So you would fly 17 hours, and that was that was on average it for you. Either being shot down or being uh, or having the plane fail somehow. We have to keep in mind this is only a few years after Kitty Hawk. 
No, it's uh, it's really, you know, the first real Air Force and the first real fighters. And they were making things up as they went. I mean, when they started, they brought their, you know, pistols and, and grenades that they would drop from the cockpit. So these were not uh, advanced planes, at least in the beginning of World War One. And those, many of those that were shot down were shot down by the German troops in, the, in their trenches. Yes, by the German troops in the trenches. And the Germans had very advanced planes, more advanced actually than the RFC in the beginning. Uh, and they found that, that you know the RC just couldn't hold water uh, to the German planes. We yeah we all hear about the Red Baron and and in World War One, and he seems to get all the publicity. I I can't think of any names that would be uh, would be well known of British pilots. No, that's true. I mean uh, Arthur Ball was probably the only one that I knew um, when I started this book, and I just I loved writing about these these individuals. I mean David Gray. Uh, who's sort of one of the heroes of this story, was an Army sapper, um, was was trained as an artillery and engineer officer, and then decided in 1916 to become a pilot. And after rudimentary training at the, at the very best, uh, he began uh, – to become a, he became a fighter pilot, and he was actually shot down in a firefight and a dogfight with uh, the Red Baron and Oswald Bolke, who was really at that time the the German ace. Uh, the Red Baron was his uh, protege, right? Uh, exactly. Something of that kind. Well, what happened to these guys once they were shot down and captured? Well, I mean, the thing about being shot down behind enemy lines was you had no preparation for it. Okay, um, just as as preparatory of that. They were not issued parachutes. They were not issued parachutes because their their superior officers thought that it would reduce their aggression in the air. They wanted them to fight to the very end. So if you survived the crash, uh, you were then tasked with first burning your plane. By the time you burned your plane and lit a smoke signal to every German within 100 miles, you were captured. Uh, And then you were subsequently put into um, an officer uh, POW camp, which – in Germany at the time, there was 1.6 million um, prisoners. And so where you ended up and how you were treated largely depended on the commandant that you got. Well, we'll talk about the commandant, uh, the, main, the main character and, and commandant character, if you will, in a little bit. Uh, little bit. But these were all tra- – they were transported to Germany. The camps were in Germany, were they not? Well, they were. They were first transported um, usually to Cambrai. Um, in France, and then they were moved further and further by train or sometimes by horse cart, uh, deeper and deeper into to German territory. And the Germans moved them around quite a bit because uh, they knew these guys uh, were were prone to at least attempting escape. They're thinking about it. Well, they they largely moved them around because they kept on escaping. Um, you know, Gray and and a couple other individuals that I write about, Cecil Blaine and Casper Kennard, they were constantly trying to get out. And once you got out of a prison, you were generally sent uh, to isolation to to stew uh, for a month or two, and then you were delivered to another camp, delivered to someone else's problem to have. Basically, how were they treated? I think all of us have the uh, vision in mind of uh, World War II Stalags and and, uh, prisoner of war camps and the cruelty of the guards and that sort of thing. Was it the same kind of thing or was it more genteel and – in the Great War? It was, at least for the officers, it was much more genteel. If you were in enlisted ranks, you were sent to a work camp, and sometimes you were worked to the bone or worked to death. If you were an officer, that sort of splits you away. And, you know, I was surprised when I first began reading these memoirs, in some senses, how well treated these officers were. Um, in fact, they were given orderlies, or they were tasked orderlies who would serve them tea in the morning, who would clean their rooms. 
um, and generally take care of them, uh, which is remarkable to me. They were allowed out on parole, uh, which means that if you sign a card, uh, the guards would let you go take a little stroll in the countryside. And by your word, you would not escape, and then you would return uh, to the camp. And what I found sort of a curious dichotomy was these, these individuals doing everything they can to escape and yet being freely allowed out of the camp um, for a walk. Well, the camps were relatively rural. They were rural, but they were largely housed in um, former uh, barracks, whether for cavalry officers or infantry. They also, uh, according to your writing, seemed to have a fair amount of wine available to them. That's a little different. Yes. I mean, they were given um, – I mean, they threw very festive parties in, in many circumstances. The, the British officers were allowed to receive parcels from home. And that, from the German end of things, was a good deal because they were the, – the home front was essentially feeding their prisoners. So they were allowed parcels. They were allowed to draw from their bank accounts. Um, and so you have this very sort of strange world inside these camps. I mean they're hosting lectures. They're, they're putting on drama performances. They have a orchestra. Um, they're sort of doing all these things to sort of create a life um, that they can. Uh, and yet they're also trying to to get away because fundamentally, almost to an individual, they wanted to get out and get back to their squadrons. I guess for the Germans' part, they were kind of learning as they went along because this was totally different for them as well. Well, it was totally different <laughs> for everybody. Sure. I mean, the, the, just the vast sea of prisoners. Um, and, of course, there were the hog conventions on how you treat POWs. Um, but then when you're dealing with, with millions of individuals, how do you, how do you manage that? Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that the, the British and the Allied uh, prisoners, at least the officers, were just constantly trying to, to get out. And so they, they needed to deal with that by you know, increasing security, increasing the number of guards, and then eventually building what was, in essence, the Alcatraz of Germany. And, of course, more guards meant fewer troops for the front. No, and that was very much the point to, to some, of these, some of these British officers were, the, even if we don't get home, um, we will have demanded of the Germans to, uh, to bring more guards in, and that's one less man on the front. It's been about a month since I finished your book. I, I, maybe I'm wrong on this, but uh, didn't you write that some of these, these officers were sent home at some point, that they were let go? Yes, they were. There, there, <clears throat> there was in, in late 1916 and early 1970 some prisoners who had been in captivity for over two years uh, began to be repatriated. Uh, generally, they were sent back. They were sent to Holland where they would um, remain until the end of the wars just to make sure that they did not return to the, to the front. Um, but yes, it was uh, – some were returned. Were they guarded in Holland or just there too on their honor Again, system? Again, that was, that was more honor system. Yeah. Um, it was, as, as, as you say, a sort of more genteel world in some circumstances. Of course, horrors are going on in the front uh, simultaneously. Let's talk a little bit more about these care packages that were uh, sent to the <laughs> prisoners because they made, uh, they made uh, good use of, uh, of those, didn't they? Well, the care packages were lifelines. So if you're trying to escape and you need um, wire cutters, if you need boots, if you need food for your 150-mile journey uh, uh, through enemy-occupied territory to freedom, uh, you need supplies. And so you have this, this remarkable business of these prisoners sending secret coded messages to their family members or mates back home asking for supplies to be secreted into camp. So – 
you know, uh, compasses are hidden inside tennis handles. Um, you know, uh, maps are hidden inside uh, deliveries of ox tongue. Um, Fortnum and Mason's uh, parcels are just uh, alive with contraband. Um, and, you know, that's part of this story. It's surprising that this got through the Germans. I mean, were they just careless or totally unaware or what? It was just the sheer deluge of, of parcels. I mean, you just oh. can't um, – they couldn't have inspected every one, although, you know, they made a, a certain joy out of taking their knives to cakes and food and, and clothes to sort of rip them apart if, if they didn't like a prisoner. Well, the fact that they were receiving these things and sending these coded messages uh, reinforces your observation that they were very persistent in their desire to uh, to escape. Let's talk a little bit about how they planned it and some of the things that went on during this uh, planning process. So you have this camp um, called Holtzmanden where this, this Alcatraz, as I, as I uh, call it, um, that was in 1917 basically constructed to house the worst of the worst, the most escape prone. And David Gray and Cecil Blaine and others arrive at Holtzmanden. And, you know, the first thing that they do besides uh, going into their rooms is to figure out how to get out. Um, and – you know, one of the things that they they had learned up to that point was the the as soon as you get into a camp, begin because that's when security is at its uh, lightest. And so they decided, well, we could break through this wall, or we could um, potentially uh, create a balloon to fly out of there. We could have a chute that would rocket itself over the walls. All these ideas were tested and thought about, but they eventually came to this idea that a tunnel, um, a very long tunnel, would be the best way out. How could they envision using a balloon to get out? How, how do you make a balloon in, in an Alcatraz? I, I, you'd, be, you'd be amazed at what these individuals were capable of doing with what they had. They, they essentially created a paper mache uh, balloon that was big enough to, to sort of twist its way through several rooms uh, but it was never airworthy. It was discovered and, um, well, burned. The guards at the time, uh, you write that the guards at times were really quite favorable towards some of these prisoners because they hated the commandant so much. Well, they hated Carl Niemeyer, who was the commandant of Holtzmanden, um, or, or as the officers nicknamed him, Milwaukee Bill. I mean, Carl Niemeyer was uh, described by others as a cad, a ruffian, a tyrant, an ogre, a bore. Uh, he was just an awful uh, human individual. He would parade around camp and shoot at the windows if officers were, were seen sort of leaning out. Um, he would sentence people to isolation for no reason at all. And he just was this just towering, horrible individual that not only the prisoners hated – but the guards hated and, and, you know, comically even his dog hated him. Yeah. He sounds more like the, uh, the prototype for World War II uh, commandants. He is it? very much uh, straight out of Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> right, right. Why Milwaukee Bill? He, they called him Milwaukee Bill because well, if you were to believe uh, Niemeyer, and he told a lot of stories, he served as a bartender um, in Milwaukee for a number of years and so spoke a sort of rough, guttural American uh, he was constantly slaughtering the English language. 
but if you also believed him, he was an Iron Cross winner. He was a spy. Um, he had served on the front. Uh, he had been torpedoed at sea. He was uh, an obfuscator of first class. Right. He did more than was possible to do at the time. He did. Well, we're going to take a break now and come back and talk to Neil Bascom, who was the author of uh, the Daredevil pi- Band. Let's see. The Escape Artist, the Band of Daredevil. It's a long title. The Escape <laughs> Artist, a Band of Daredevil Pilots and the Greatest Prison Break of the Great War. He'll be discussing his book this evening, by the way, at the uh, Missouri History Museum. What time is that? 7 o'clock? 7 p.m. Yes. 7 p.m. Okay. At the History Museum. Back to continue the conversation. If you'd like to be a part of it, maybe you have questions about this period of history and what we're talking about, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you'd prefer to send a tweet, do so at STL on air. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Now back to uh, Neil Bascom, the author of The Escape Artists, A Band of Daredevil Pilots and the Greatest Prison Break Ever of the Great War. Let's talk about the uh, the ordeal, if you will, of of building a tunnel. Uh, it looks easy in the movies. It does look very easy in the movies, and the the, the fact of the matter was, it was a, a, a horrifying experience for many of the individuals involved in this escape at Holtzminden. Uh, you first have to figure out where to start a tunnel, because obviously you can't. Uh, the origin of the tunnel must be in a place where you can dig in secret. Uh, so they first reconnoitered the camp to find the perfect spot, and they found it underneath the stairwell uh, in the orderlies' quarters of the barracks. They created a hinge door that was seamless that you couldn't see, and then every afternoon three men would walk you know, in orderly uniforms, go down into the barracks, down the steps, push their way in through the thing, and start digging. Um, the first barrier to digging was, of course, that steel rods were, were part of the foundation of, of the barracks, so they needed to find acid to burn through them. Of course, that is not something you buy at the uh, commissary right. um, in camp, so you have to secret that in um, from friends back home. And then you have to, to, to begin digging this tunnel. Um, it was roughly 10 feet uh, underground. Uh, it was sloped in the beginning. Um, it was very small. It wasn't like the ones that you, uh, many people may imagine in World War II, these massive structures with elevators and, and, and lights and electricity and fans blowing. This was a, a tunnel that, that you would dig as if you were a boy. I mean, you could not, um, you had to lie flat on your tummy to get into it. You could not lift yourself up further than on your elbows. Um, it was very tight. You, you had to go in um, face first, and you had to come back out feet first, uh, wriggling your way forward. It was um, a job done with spoons at about a foot a day. Uh, cave-ins were frequent. Um, there was very little oxygen. The deeper that they uh, dug, uh, they ran into rock walls. Um, some had claustrophobia and uh, were dealing with that, you know, yet needing to 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 get out. And so it was a horrifying, uh, treacherous, uh, laborious 
job, and they did it. What did they do with the dirt? It had to go someplace. So in the beginning, um, they they would attach a, a rope to the, the digger's leg, and the rope would be attached to a bin. Uh, he would... He would dig his dirt. He would sort of wriggle his way to put the dirt into the bin. Then he would tug the rope. Then his his mate would pull that dirt out. They would put it into to pillowcase sacks and keep it underneath the stairwell. When they filled up the stairwell, they began um, going up to the eaves of the barracks and dropping it into the crevice of the walls. So at times, they would deliver it also in the yard. Uh, but for the most part, they kept it within the barracks. How many attempts at, at, at tunnels did they make? Well, there was there was a crew at at Holtzman and who were were nicknamed the Pink Toes, and they were called the Pink Toes because they were constantly digging and had wet feet and and were were going at it. But the only tunnel that was that was dug there uh, was the one that was ultimately successful. The 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 difference or or the idea of two tunnels there was, one, they initially thought that it would only need to be 15 yards long. Mm-hmm. They thought that it would take about six weeks and then they would be out. Um, sadly, in January of 1918, when they were ready to go, uh, Niemeyer put a guard almost on top of where they were going to come out. And so then they, then they had to dig another 60 yards, which was a monumental operation. And, of course, it's, it took a lot of time, but they had to be making plans for when the tunnel was completed and when they escaped. I mean, you, you just don't uh, walk out of the tunnel and, and, and walk to freedom. Not, not in this case, when freedom was 150 miles away. No, exactly. And, and David Gray, who is considered the father of the tunnel, was very clear with the men that it was one thing to get out of Holtzman, and it was quite something altogether different to make it to freedom. Uh, he had been captured twice uh, on the run, one within, you know, uh, spitting distance of the border. And so he crafted and, and the various other uh, of these officers crafted elaborate uh, ruses, uh, uh, traveling schemes uh, to get uh, through Germany. Um, David Gray, Cecil Bland, and Casper Kennard's idea was that one of them would act like an escaped lunatic asylum patient, mm-hmm. and the other two were orderlies bringing him back. And and that ruse helped them get all the way. You needed clothes, you needed documentation, and, and you needed, needed to know where you were going. And you needed maps, and you right. needed compasses, and you needed bags that uh, were um, waterproof so that you could cross the rivers because, of course, you can't use the bridges. Mm-hmm. Um, they knew that the moment they got out and it was discovered that they had, they had escaped, that Niemeyer, who promised when they arrived at the camp, to their faces when they came through the gate, none of you will ever escape this place. They knew he would do everything possible to get them back. And in fact, on the night after the escape, he issued a sort of nationwide manhunt for these Holtzman and escapees. And of course, uh, not only did they have to worry about uh, the troops going after them, there was a civilian population that they had to work around as well. Yeah, they enlisted uh, any number of these um these prisoners at Holtzman and had been nabbed before, for the most part, by civilians uh, who uh, became essentially hunting parties uh, mm-hmm. pursuing uh, escaped prisoners of war. Uh, there were newspaper bulletins issued on after the escape saying, you know, be on the lookout for these individuals. So the whole population was really charged with um, making sure that they got back. Uh, exiting through the tunnel, which was a very narrow 
and they had the clothes that they were going to be wearing through their escape, you would get very dirty. I mean, you would look like you've just crawled through a tunnel, I would assume. <laughs> uh, how did they deal with that? Well, uh, uh, any number of them had had different ideas of, of how they planned on getting to, to Holland. For instance, Colonel Rathborn, who was a senior officer in camp, uh, his plan was to impersonate, impersonate a German businessman. So he needed to look uh, tight and natty. Uh, so he actually wore the suit underneath his prisoner of war uniform, which for the most part, most of them did. And so once they emerged, um, they stripped those clothes off and now just had their sort of traveling uh, outfits. But all that that they, that they traveled with from food to, um, to the waterproof sacks took months and months and months of preparation to get to the point where they're ready. And there was a sad story. I think this took part uh, place a little bit uh, before this big break that we're talking about here. Someone escaped, and they got to the border of Holland and thought they had crossed the border and were sort of celebrating, and uh, uh-oh, they weren't quite there yet. Yes, that was actually David Gray. He yeah. he uh, walked into a police station believing that, that he was uh, walking into freedom and discovered that there were a number of German guards there, and he was uh, summarily brought back. Uh, to a camp. He was actually put in isolation then for two months and nearly went mad from from dehydration and exhaustion. Mm. 29. In the big break, 29 got out. Um, and they all went kind of their separate ways. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. We've talked about how they dressed and what have you. But uh, uh, how did how did they uh, keep in touch with each other? Did they? So the 29 got out before the tunnel actually collapsed on itself. Uh, from from all the gear that these men were wriggling through the tunnel, it, it did not survive long. Um, each of the 29, they split off generally into twos and threes. Colonel Rathborn went on his own. Uh, he hiked about 10 miles to the nearest town, bought a train ticket with his perfect German, uh, and he was uh, made it to freedom within roughly 36 hours. Uh, sent a telegram to to Carl Niemeyer at camp, um, saying, "This is one of my favorite lines of the, of the book." It, sa- it says, "Having a lovely time. Stop. If you ever come to London, stop. We'll break your neck. Stop." Mm-hmm. Um, the others uh, did not quite make it that quickly. They traveled generally uh, at night and slept in the, during the daytime. Uh, they uh, used maps um, that they had smuggled in. Um, of course, Gray, Kennard, and Blaine used the ruse of the escape uh, um, from the insane asylum. Uh, of the 29 who got out, 19 of them were recaptured, mostly pretty quickly, fording rivers. Uh, Ten made it to freedom. Okay. All the way to uh, back home. All the way. And how were they treated when they got back home? It was it was they were treated extremely well. I mean, they were heroes, <clears throat> and not only were they heroes by their own right, but the British government knew that they were they were perfect material for propaganda heroes. Here was sort of British daring duo um, in the darkest time of the war, uh, overcoming the Germans, and so they were heralded in newspaper headlines. The the king uh, uh, welcomed them into his palace. Um, it made international headlines. And then almost to an individual, they went straight back to their squadrons uh, to continue the fight. This is something you point out in the book that is most interesting, is that they wanted to escape primarily because they wanted to get back into the fight. It wasn't just getting away from these horrible conditions. No, it's true. I mean, there's <clears throat> there's a sense, and, and it's probably best written by Will Harvey, who was a prisoner at Holtzman and also a poet, 
Um, the sense of the idleness of, of, of being there, knowing that your your mates are still fighting, the, he called it a moldiness that sort of grows all over your mind and your body, this inability to help, to be active. Mm-hmm. And escape was way to um, thwart that. You, uh, we've made much of the fact that this was kind of a template for uh, some of the things we're familiar with in World War II. As a matter of fact, that is true, is it not? That, that uh, this was inspirational and uh, there were certain things that were learned during this time that are still in effect today, apparently. Yes, I mean, that's actually how I came to the story. Uh, I was reading a history of, of MI9, which is the British uh, Escape and Evasion Service in World War II. And in that, they have this little story about Holtzman and, and this big breakout in World War One. In fact, those Holtzman and escapees were the ones who were MI9 recruited, and in some circumstances, they helped found the organization to teach the art of escape. And if you look at the sheer numbers, um, I think the figure is in World War One, uh, British uh, men who were behind enemy lines, 573 made it to freedom. In World War II, of British Allied Commonwealth um, soldiers, sailors, pilots, 33,000 made it back. To a very large measure, that is because of MI9, uh, to the lectures that men such as James Bennett, who was one of the Holtzman and mm-hmm. escapees, gave uh, almost on a weekly basis throughout the war. What would they basically tell? What was the instruction? What were they telling them? Well, what? the primary uh, thing that they told them, um, and I actually have the lecture notes that James Bennett oh. uh, delivered. Um, his his uh, daughter gave them to me. And on the bottom of the list, but the one that he accentuates the most is escape as soon as possible. James Bennett was downed over the North Sea. He was actually captured by a submarine. Uh, he knew that within his first moments, uh, he had his best chance of escape, but he just didn't do it. Um, and so when he got back and started lecturing in World War II, he made sure that people knew that your best chance was at the beginning. Um, and then it was also a case of just supplying them with material, supplying them with, with compasses, supplying them with maps. So when they're down, they, they know where to go. Uh, having some sort of mental preparation for that made a huge difference. So what we're talking about here is if you're if you're shot down, rather than being captured, just finding a way to to get back to safety somehow. It's not always necessarily escaping from a POW camp. Exactly, yeah. and in fact, you're <clears throat> as soon as you're in a POW camp, then your chances of getting out are are far 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 diminished. Uh, whether you know from the moment you're down, uh, try to escape. Even in transport, you're you also have a very good chance of escape because the guard uh, is just not that heavy. Uh, but once you're deeper inside enemy territory, once you're inside a camp with security, then then it's a much tougher gig. It's almost counterintuitive to think that the guard w- w- would be lax, the security would be lightest at the uh, approximate time of capture. It is. It's sort of counterintuitive, and I think that for James Bennett, at least, um, he thought that his best chance would be when he had recovered, when he had, um, you know, had some rest and had figured out where to go. But in fact, his best moment was actually on a train um, on his way back to Germany. There was an open window, and he still, much later in life, uh, knew that if he had just jumped through that window, he probably would not have spent uh, two years in prison camps. Do any of these uh, tactics and strategies uh, apply to uh, our troops? No, they do. They still um, the the American um, the Americans started an escape evasion service almost simultaneously with mm-hmm. the British. 
the lectures and supplies were sort of shared between the allies. Um, and even today, the uh, escape and evasion is taught within the services. Uh, in World War One, it was not taught at all. Uh, the two minutes left, let's talk about what happened to these folks uh, after the war. Uh, did they just go on to live normal lives and maybe doing some instructing as well? But what was that like? Well, a handful of them went on to be lecturers at MI9. Um, but the sort of heroes of, of, of this story, as I tell it, escape artists, uh, they died tragically uh, rather immediately. Um, Cecil Blaine, uh, who was the youngest pilot in his squadron, um, who escaped from Holtzminden, he went back to his squadron, uh, actually was test, uh, testing new planes and died um, in a crash uh, within months of escaping. In fact, his memoirs, which I had, which were handwritten, they literally end almost mid-sentence um, oh, wow. where, you know, he had, he had perished. David Gray, uh, the sort of leader of this escape, died in a, in a car accident, a truck accident, and, uh, and Casper Kennard was, was also killed. Tragically. In 30 seconds, Niemeyer, the commandant. And Niemeyer, uh, <laughs> great Niemeyer, he disappeared um, after the war. Uh, the Allies uh, designated him as, as someone they wanted to bring to trial. He disappeared. Some thought that he had committed suicide in a bar in Stuttgart, um, but he was never seen or heard of again. Uh, implying perhaps that he knew he had been a bad boy. <laughs> he knew he had been a bad boy, and he had he had stolen enough money from the British that he had quite a bit of a fun to uh, to secure for himself. All right. Well, once again, it's a great story, and I want to thank Neil Bascom for being with us and telling us a large part of it here. But there's plenty more in the book, folks, uh, a lot more detail in the books. And the book is The Escape Artists, A Band of Daredevil Pilots and the Greatest Prison Break of the Great War. He'll be discussing that book this evening at 7 o'clock at the Missouri History Museum. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to see you. Enjoyed Thanks, the book. Enjoyed the book.